0: I'm here with Ryan McMacken. Um, he is a senior editor at the Mises Institute, and he's been writing, he writes about a lot of things, but he's written a few articles about the lockdowns, um, you know, whether they're working, whether they're not working, and, you know, what working actually means, you know, when by one measure something is successful, but you're ignoring Um, a ton of other measures, what what does that actually mean? So Ryan, welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Hi. Great to be here.
0: Um, So I just really wanted to ask you, what is your, you know, I've read your articles, but you know, what what is your take on, what's your take on the lockdowns?
1: Well, you know, that's been a question I've been asking myself since March uh, because it was all so fast in terms of how they implemented this and one minute, uh, you know, it's just the usual problems. And then the next minute you're being told, well, you shouldn't leave your home anymore. And so I, as as an editor at the Mises Institute, I was trying to figure out, well, how do we address this issue clearly uh, This is a massive human rights violation, right? You can't Mm -hmm. just take away people's right to travel freely. You can't prevent people from seeking employment, trying to make a living. These are terrible things to do to a person. And so uh, certainly this is a rights violation and immoral. However, people also most people are really kind of consequentialists and they think well if, if we get rid of the uh, the virus then it's all worth it and we sh- mm-hmm. we should just do whatever uh, so I needed to come up with some other explanations of why just on a practical level this doesn't work uh, as well uh, and so after a while it became quickly clear that there, and even diving into some of the research on quarantine and the proposals for lockdowns that had occurred in the past, it quickly became clear that it's been recognized for quite a while, and certainly there's lots of research to back this up now, is that real costs come with uh, shutting down the institutions that are important in people's lives. And so if we just look at data on isolation, on unemployment, uh, and then just look at the anecdotal evidence that co- that's coming in now, we quickly started to see that there are a lot of problems here in terms of drug overdoses, child abuse, uh, other diseases that are being untreated, and just a whole lot of problems that come with people being unable to get the help and the resources they need because you've locked everyone down with this um, monomaniacal obsession with addressing just this one disease while letting all of other society's problems basically be ignored.
0: Yeah, it, and that's that's kind of one one aspect of it. A, another level to that is kind of the psych. I, I call it psychological warfare. That's that's being committed on people. I, I don't know what else to call it. You know, there there are the things you can measure like suicides, um, drug overdoses, alcoholism, reported child abuse, that kind of thing. But then there's this whole other layer that we'll never even be able to measure. You know, the the psychological damage and the the trust between people, you know, we've now, I keep comparing this to um, the Chinese cultural revolution where, you know, everybody was pitted against everyone else. And there's a lot of that going on here, you know, with, you know, neighbors ratting out neighbors and people ratting out stores and businesses that are opening and things like that. And how do you even me- Is there, is there a way to measure that the, the lack, the, the loss in societal trust that, because it changes a society, it really it changes the the nature of a society. Is there any way to measure that?
1: Not really. I mean, it, it can manifest itself in ways such as uh, mental illness and that sort of thing, depression, and so on. But how do you then attribute that to this specific cause? And, mm-hmm. and there's no interest in the medical community in doing such a thing. And so that's always been a big problem. And that was one of the columns I did on this is that what we've got is a regime that's devoted toward measuring one thing and not measuring all of the bad things that, that could result from your, uh, your pursued solution. So I mean, basically what we, we suddenly were faced with is here's this number and we invented all these new websites and we had Mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins and and now there's this big ticker, there's this giant clock on the wall that's got this constantly getting bigger number on the number of people who have this disease or are dying from it. And what is not on the wall, what is not getting its own website, what is not being promoted 24 seven, are those numbers of people who have other problems like the drug addict who now can't get help or the unemployed person uh, now who is having marital problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these issues are just there. There's no clock. There's no ticker. There's uh, there's no banner saying how many uh, people have died from these other things. And so we just completely ignore that. And so measurement is a real big problem, but that's often been a tool of the state is we measure the things that we want to regulate, or we measure the things that help us as the state justify our policies. And then we just ignore everything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of, there are a lot of numbers out there. Just today, I think it was in, was Forbes reported that I think it was 42% of black businesses, black owned businesses um, are, are, closing for good or, or, you know, shut down forever. Um, And that's the kind of thing we, you know, if you, if you look for these indicators, you can see them. There are, you know, there are unemployment numbers. There are numbers of businesses that are, that are closed down. And yet you kind of have to make, you know, there's not, there's not some, you know, it's not being flashed on the nightly news and there's not some big website that everybody goes to every day to find out how many small businesses have gone under. Um, It seems like it's just kind of tragically, a really effective tool that the state has to simply shine a light on something and say, this is the one thing we all need to be afraid of. And, you know, because we're not shining a light on it and the media is not completely focused on it, you know, everything else doesn't matter. Do you think people are waking up to that now that there it's so clear to me that there's this manipulation going on, that there are these authorities telling us, to focus on this one thing. Do, do you think that's becoming more clear and people are, are kind of becoming more aware of what's going on on that level?
1: Well, I certainly hope so. I think there's a growing awareness of the fact that uh, being constantly plugged into the news cycle, especially social media, uh, has takes its toll on you psychologically. Mm-hmm. And all of those studies showing that people spend a lot of time on Facebook and so on are more depressed uh, these are these are things that people really need to limit in their lives, and and I think once this is all done, I think we will see see some maybe some very interesting studies and books on the role of social media in this panic as. As mm-hmm. related to earlier panics. I mean, let's imagine some fake panics from the, sa- from the past, right? Like the satanic panics of the 80s and those right. sorts of things. I mean, imagine if we had social media to magnify those, those yeah. things. Yeah. And it would have been so different. You would have heard about much more about it. Who knows what people would have said, what videos, what photos, what memes might have been produced. And But as it was, uh, you could only be exposed to so much. And I think it, it died out sooner than it might have if there had been an internet uh, of, of today's nature uh, yeah. back then. So I think it really does magnify. And I think some people really do uh, recognize that. However, what are they going to do about it? I, I don't think there's any sort of agreement on how much of this news should I consume on yeah. a daily basis? Many, yeah. Many, maybe people would say, oh, I consume too much, but I don't know what the right amount is. There's so many people who feel that they have this duty to be informed and read up on all this stuff, which I'm not sure you really have that duty. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Or just a fear of missing. I mean, things have been so crazy and, you know, I'm in California where things are even crazier than anywhere else practically. And there's this sense that, Oh God, I've got to, you wake up in the morning and say, Oh, I got to go check and see what insane edicts Governor Newsom has, has just declared, you know, what do I have to? What do I have to wear to go outside today? Kind of thing. I mean, it's just there's so much happening so fast, and at such a crazy level that I think there's this sense that you know we have to know what's going on, or we might walk outside our door and be arrested. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty nuts. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you know a lot of people talk about what's happened economically here as this, as a wealth transfer, which it seems like it is from small private businesses to large conglomerates, to, you know, corporate America um, and to the state. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's, I think, been one of the most terrible things that's happened here is how uh, during the worst of the, the lockdowns and the, the stay-at-home orders, uh, a lot of small businesses really suffered the most. Whereas you could still go to Home Depot, you could still go to Walmart and Target and that sort of thing. And that was a result of just, not necessarily intentional of course, but the fact that small businesses often didn't have the variety of products, so they wouldn't fall under these essential these lists of which businesses were essential and so on. Mm-hmm. So you could have Walmart that had a bunch of painting supplies uh, but they also had hardware. So they fell under essential business. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, I did not live in a bonker state that would uh, <laughs> tape off aisles and sections of stores yeah. and things like that. So that wasn't an issue here. Uh, I'm in Colorado. But... Okay. Uh nevertheless, you saw a lot of uh, small businesses close. And then, of course, uh, bars and restaurants were, were completely closed yeah. in many cases. And, of course, small businesses don't have access to the sort of capital right. that large businesses do. People don't realize that it's just a lot easier for some big, huge corporation to get loans. And this was all made worse after the financial crisis with things like Dodd-Frank and the tightening up of uh, – uh, bank regulations. It's uh, banks don't make loans to small businesses to high risk uh, ventures like they used to oh, anymore. They they huh. gravitate much more toward just larger institutional lending, um, big companies that have deep pockets that they know can make their payments and so on. So there's a lot less risk taking by banks.
0: And is that that's because of these new regulations?
1: Yeah, they really tightened up um, what you can loan out and, and what sort of risk you can take on because, of course, they're always talking about stress tests for banks and making sure mm-hmm. the banks are are better capitalized and so on. And a lot of that is really hollowed out, the sort of lending that's available to, to small businesses, and that includes farmers a lot of the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm.
0: agricultural groups. Yeah, I mean, they, they seem to, the small farms anyway, seem to have been really hit hit by this, um, I haven't, I don't know what the numbers are, but I just remember early on seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of chickens euthanized and pigs. And it's like, you know, you can't, yeah, if you're a, if you're a massive, you know, agribusiness, you can, you can probably afford that. But if you're a mom and pop farm, you know, something like this could, could put you under. And, um, You know, I I suspect that a lot of people, a lot of the people who are supportive of the lockdowns don't make that connection, don't realize that anytime there's a huge economic stress like this, the people who are affected the most are the little guys.
1: Right. And there's so little flexibility for them, too, because of the lockdown. Now, a lot of people would argue, oh, well, people really limited their spending and a lot of people voluntarily stayed home and that sort of thing. And so that that's what really impacted the small business. Uh, But uh, while that no doubt is a factor, the fact of the matter is these businesses just they were simply closed. Mm-hmm. or they they weren't allowed mm-hmm. to innovate or be entrepreneurial in any way as to how they opened or uh, in what fashion they could address the concerns right. of their clientele. They had, no,
0: they had no way of just adjusting their behavior to to still keep functioning. Um, you mentioned, so you wrote an article about Sweden, and that's actually, that would be an interesting thing to look at because Sweden didn't have the kind of lockdown we had, but there was, you know, people did change their behavior. They they didn't go out as much, they weren't spending as much, um, and yet, you know, their, their economy is one of the few that grew during this time. So it's, it's kind of hard, hard to argue that, you know, all of the damage that's been done to businesses is because of people's voluntary activity because we've got Sweden to point to. So what, what can we learn from Sweden?
1: yes uh sweden did the least bad of uh of the european countries in general even though sweden is very dependent on trade so of course of all the economies shutting down around it it's mm-hmm. going to be negatively impacted so uh a lot of those people were disingenuous when they pointed to the fact that that sweden mm. sweden had a small decline in its economy in a variety of ways and they're saying look uh right not shutting down didn't help them but the reality of course is they did much better. Uh, than their neighbors, and and they re- rely on uh, on trade, and then for similar reasons, by the way, which is why U.S. states that didn't shut down, like South Dakota, still were right. impacted heavily economically because South Dakota re- relies heavily on trade with neighboring states, of course. Right. Uh, so uh, that's not really a convincing argument there that uh, that Sweden would have been. Uh, Just They would have been uh, no worse off had they shut down. That's totally unconvincing. Uh, But yeah, it was more of a targeted uh, lockdown. Some people, high-risk people, were encouraged to stay at home and to essentially lock down, to self-isolate and that sort of thing. And if you read... the actual uh, Sweden-based news on this matter. Sweden readily admits they didn't do everything as well as they had hoped because a lot of their uh, policy uh, was not as focused on the elderly as it needed to be. Right,
0: right.
1: And so they actually were just giving palliative care in a lot of cases to the elderly and not addressing the disease specifically as they might have been and so on. And so that's why the numbers were as high as they were. Right. Uh, however, when the news gets wind of these sort of things where, where someone, uh, some high ranking Swede says, well, things could have been better, they immediately, the U.S. press immediately interprets that as, well, Swede admits it was a mistake yes. not to lock yeah. down, yeah. right? Yeah, and so since and people who
0: only read headlines are going to come away, come away with that impression.
1: And your English speakers are at a disadvantage too, because if you don't read Swedish, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've I've relied a little bit on Per Bieland, one of our fellows at the Mises mm-hmm. Institute, who is Swedish, and he will link to articles and then and then kind of summarize them oh, and it's then. Funny. And then I can sort of, then since he's pointing out to me what's important, I can then kind of use Google Translate to sort of fake my way through it. Right, right. Uh, but it's hard because it's Swedish. It's not like, I understand grammar and like Spanish and French, but not as Swedish. So I, it's, I, it's yeah, much more difficult yeah. to read. And so Americans in general, they're not getting any straight from Sweden news. Most of yeah. The time.
0: Yeah, and even you know, I I've, I've heard so many people. I've been very skeptical of the mainstream media for a long time, but it's so interesting to me to see people who previously you know had been reading the New York Times as if it was a good source of information, and are now kind of realizing what's going on. Even without the language barrier, there's so much distortion and so much manipulation going on. You know, again, I just I hope I hope people wake up to that. Um, another thing, you know, that they did in Sweden was they kept the schools open, at least the up until high school, I believe it was. Um, and so the kids are still in school are running around having contact, you know, spreading this deadly virus. Um, and that seems to have worked out fine yet here we are, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually working with someone to help set set up a like a homeschooling center where kids can come and, you know, socialize and, you know, be together and still, you know, do work and all that stuff. And it's hard talking to parents about it because here in the U S people are still, it's like, they can't see what's going on in other countries or, or they block it out. or I, I don't know what it is, but it's like, we have these examples, you know, and it's not only Sweden, you know, Taiwan, Japan, a lot of other places that didn't have lockdowns. And yet it's, it's, as if, it's as if Americans can't see that or, or don't want to see it. What, what do you think is going on there?
1: Well, I think they've just been told that over and over again, that this is what works. Uh, and, then, and this, of course, brings us to the topic of, you know, does it work or not? And, yeah. and that, that's the issue of, uh, well, how do you define it working Right. Right. I think a lot of Americans uh, ingested this idea that lockdown somehow magically make the disease go away. Right. And if you have a functioning memory, you might remember (laughs) back in March. Right. It was 15 days to slow the spread. Yeah. And the, the the whole discussion was about you need to flatten the curve. We need to lock people down for a short term so that we can get a handle on things and not overwhelm the hospitals. That was the claim.
0: Yeah,
1: And then at some point that morphed into this idea that by locking people down, the disease just goes away
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that you could somehow just prevent people from ever getting it. And, and then that morphed into this whole idea, well, it, it kind of got caught up in this mixture of this idea that we'll just keep everyone locked down until there's a vaccine.
0: Yeah,
1: And that's the only way to save people. And so people actually don't come into this with any real analytical uh, (laughs) competence.
0: The the, the crazy part of that for me, if you you look at the Imperial College report, it acknowledges that it's not, I mean, it, it was very clear. This was the whole recommendation to have the lockdowns was as you said to prevent hospital overload but they never pretended you know they talk about a second wave and a third wave they they don't pretend that they're going to make it go away and to me when i look at that to it looks like the intent from the very beginning was just to keep a damper on this thing in the the first wave the second wave the third wave ongoingly until there's a vaccine and I think there are a lot of problems with that, and I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding of how sort of societies interact with viruses, and you know whether there will be a third and a fourth wave, just as bad. But let's you know pre- assume that, that that that's correct, because they didn't. That report never had sort of a final solution. It was always just, yeah, let's we'll deal with the first wave this way, but then there's going to be a second wave, and all all I can see out of that is that they were they were planning to have a vaccine come on the market and that would be you know that would be the end of it that's when we can stop the lockdowns
1: and americans were getting all of these mixed messages and mm-hmm. so i think i think all they took away from it though was that lockdowns will save me from getting the disease yeah and it's not just a, you want to make sure that, that, that there's a hospital bed for you or whatever, if you're one of the uh, small percentage of people who need hospitalization. Right. Uh, but right. from the very beginning, the Koreans, for example, were saying, oh, only 10% of people even need medical attention. Mm-hmm. Most people just, just stay at home and weather it. And yeah. that was early on. That was back in March where they were saying that. Yeah. And so, I mean, basically we were saying it was, okay, so 90% of the people who get it, well, you know, they stay at home and and, and that's it. So you just wanted to make sure there was medical attention for those people. And you, you could also see the advantage, um, arguably, in just buying a little bit of time, right? Like we don't know sure. what this is. So let's just lock everybody down for a couple of weeks. And then while we just try to figure out what we're dealing with here. But then that turned into a month and then two months and three months, four months, and so on, and here we are. And now I'm hearing reporters say, I, and I heard this a guy, uh, his name now escapes me, wrote an article for the Hill, uh, talking about this disconnect between uh, the realities of total deaths and and what the public thinks about it, and
0: so mm-hmm. on. Oh uh, yes, I, I saw that. Where where uh, I guess there was a survey, and they the the results were that most most Americans believed nine percent of Americans had died from COVID. Was that
1: well, that was that was one also, but that was different, yes. Well, Americans uh, believe that a large number of people have died from, and much larger than the reality, of yeah. course. But at the same time, this reporter was upset that a lot of people, in spite of seeing that high risk, elected to go out and try to earn a living anyway, mm. because they were just assessing their risk in a way that the experts didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And so okay. it was just, you know, the typical whole thing is that, well, uh, the only reason people disagree with the experts is because they're dumb,
0: right? Um, they're they're ignorant, and- right?
1: Not that they could have a different value system, but right. I heard this very same reporter say in a radio interview, "quote We know how to stop this disease. <laughs> you wash your hands and you stay at home." Well, that that's completely has nothing to do. With science of any kind. Right. This right. is just something this guy made up. Lockdowns do not stop this disease. So this is a guy writing nationwide articles about this topic. So not oh, just yeah. the public believes this now, apparently the people writing about it. Somehow oh yeah. No, if you so read too. if
0: you read if you read mainstream news about this, that's exactly that's that's typical. Um and then that you know, which which raises the whole question of herd immunity. You know, once people started talking about that, I think. Newt Witkowski was the first epidemiologist to come on the scene or the the first one we heard about saying, look, this is nuts. You want young and healthy people to catch it. This is, this is how humanity has dealt with viruses for millennia. You want the population to interact with it, the healthy people to, to get it, overcome it and develop herd immunity. Yeah. Protect the elderly, protect the people who are at risk, but you know, and, and every, Every I can't say every because I'm sure there are there are some that are, you know, in in cahoots with the people who want the lockdowns, but so many epidemiologists have come out and said this, yes, what makes sense is to go out, get the virus, get over it, develop herd immunity, and then, you know, in a few months we can actually they've been saying in a few weeks, we can we can be done with it and old people can come out and play with their grandchildren again.
1: Well, and then when they refuse to do that, you kind of wonder what the end game is yeah. for some of these countries. Like, does Australia have any end game? Right.
0: Oh my God. Yeah.
1: So are they just going to keep locking down every time some people get this disease uh, in some city and then just completely destroying the local economy? Uh, they don't seem to have any plan yeah. whatsoever.
0: Yeah. What Or they have a plan and it's a lot darker than any of us are.
1: <laughs> it's a are, terrible plan if they yeah, have one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just... I guess that's what baffles me most is that you know you can there's not there's been a shutdown of information you can look at different countries and see what's going on and it just it just doesn't make any sense. Um, one thing you I think I think this was on Mises.org. You guys had an article about the South Korean uh, medical system, the healthcare system. There? Yes,
1: early on.
0: Yeah, that was actually I that was really valuable. I thought because one of the things it pointed out was that. Um, the South Korean healthcare system is much more private than ours. It's much more—I um, would—I wouldn't call it free market necessarily, but the hospitals are like 90% of them are are run and operated privately. And um, what was interesting to me was when you look at beds per capita in South Korea, way higher than in the U.S. I think in South Korea it was like 13 or 14 uh, per hundred thousand. And in the US, it was something like three per 100,000. I mean, a huge discrepancy. And to me, that's part, I mean, it, it, in the end, you know, we didn't, except for possibly New York and even that, not really see hospitals being overwhelmed. Um, but if that had been an issue, there's this underlying system that strangles medical care that strangles supply of hospitals of of pretty much everything in the healthcare system. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I thought that was, that was, I'm going to link to that in the notes because I think that was just a phenomenal um, piece of information in that, um, in that piece.
1: Yeah, that was very helpful. That's been kind of a project of mine uh, here is a lot of the time people confuse the phrase universal coverage with Mm -hmm. single payer government run healthcare system. And there's really only a few countries that have this the worst case scenario, which is the British style mm-hmm. single payer where you have no other choices. And right. it's illegal in many cases even to get supplemental private health insurance. But in Korea, there's lots of supplemental private health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of these clinics. Unfortunately, the US takes a dumb approach where they limit the availability of hospitals in many cases. Mm-hmm. And you have to prove this certificate of need in order to build a clinic or hospital, that sort of thing. I wonder how how that'll all play out after this? Uh, I have an idea of how that's going to play
0: out. I think I think it could I think it could be um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity here, and I think it, it's if it, this has been a great opportunity to shine a light on a lot of that stuff, um, the certificate of need stuff, especially because you know here you are disrupting not you obviously um, mm-hmm. you know we're disrupting the entire economy out of fear of this one virus overwhelming hospitals, and yet we have these laws. That severely restrict hospitals, the number of hospitals and where, you know, existing hospitals have a say in who else gets to come on their turf. So I, I feel like that's good. There's going to be a huge turnaround there. Um,
1: yeah i hope so i mean i don't want to hear anything from the ama about how there's too many doctors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. or from local legislators about how there's too many hospitals and that sort of thing probably those same people were among the most hysterical people about his hospitals being overwhelmed uh in this case
0: yeah yeah um so final question so we're getting close to the end here um I like to keep this show about solutions. I like to talk a lot about, you know, what we can do to, to make things better. Any ideas, any, any, um, what, what do you think, you know, somebody who looks at this sees the craziness of what's going on, what can we do? How can we, how can we fix this or, or help to have a better outcome after this is all over?
1: Well, I think one beneficial thing, at least in the United States, uh, is the realization that uh, local uh, elections matter, and because this became such a state-based and even county-based mm-hmm. in many cases, sort of policy, where here in Colorado, for example, we have some, we had a couple of counties that just said we're not going to enforce state lockdown rules.
0: Yeah, yeah, we had some of that in California, amazingly too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you had some sheriffs who said they weren't going to do it. You had even some county commissioners uh, in a couple of counties that we're just not going to participate in all of that stuff. That should be a wake-up call to a lot of people that actually who your county commissioner is matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also now we've got like 35 states or something like that that are basically functioning as rule-by-decree elected dictatorships of sorts.
0: Yeah. Raising my hand over here, I'm living in one
1: of those. <laughs> so all these people who have all these years talked about how governor's races are really boring and they're all just <laughs> about school funding and stuff like that. You should pay attention yeah. and, and maybe make sure that the most horrible candidates in those races don't actually get in and and also state legislatures of course Madam. now we could end our emergency in this state if the legislature just passed a, a resolution it doesn't have to be signed by the governor or anything the legislature just has to pass a majority resolution declaring the end of the emergency but the mm-hmm. legislature is in the same party as the governor so they're not going to do that
0: Yep, yep. we're in the same boat here well i just i had sheriff mac on my show um last week and talking about just that about the power of sheriffs and the power of you know at the county level that you just don't enforce this stuff. You know, we we actually have the power at the local level, and I think you're right. I think this is drawing attention to that, and hopefully people will learn something from that and you know take action at the at the at the local level to nullify this stuff coming down from above.
1: Hmm. But I, you know, in terms of boy, what just can the average person do? I, I really just inculcate skepticism. As much as they can. And, and just, I think really just be aware of how the media really affects people and how the news cycle has affected people. I mean, there's, there's so little we can do. Yeah. Uh, you, you can only vote. I mean, this got my governor doesn't even come up for election for another couple of years. Yeah. Um, this, by the way, is an argument in favor of more frequent elections, because most governors used to have to run every two years in this country, but they changed that. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, well, there's a big just recall effort
0: here in California, ah.
1: but,
0: you know, <laughs> not surprisingly.
1: Um, uh, that's an issue as well. But, you know, in terms of economics, um, I mean, one of the possibly beneficial outcomes and, and something people can do, of course, is to actually save their money. Mm-hmm. And, and not just assume that everything's just going to be fine and that some horrible thing won't happen where you're just cut off from your source of income mm-hmm. and where you're not even allowed to open your business. I think a lot of people were just complacent for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, people are discouraged from saving in this country. So it's, that's probably, you know, been ingrained over, over a few decades. But yeah, I think it might be a wake up call.
1: Yeah. And uh, so I I think people should maybe really look for and be more pessimistic about what states are willing to do to them um, and how much uh, the elected officials really care about them, which is to say (laughs) not very much. Yeah, And so I I think the reality is much darker than many people assumed it was uh, just a few months ago. And because there's still no end in sight, we don't know uh, what's going to happen uh, yeah. during this winter when we're just going to start hearing about? Because, of course, cold and flu season. right os- Hospitals right. are going to fill up with just regular people getting cold and flu and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then, what are we going to hear again about all of that? I mean, w- people really need to be prepared uh, for that as well. But also, I guess uh, you mentioned homeschooling. My wife is a homeschooler and, uh, and actually does similar things to you in the respect of uh, trying to set up. Um, uh, organizations, institutions, and groups where people can come together and, and yeah, use each other as I think resources. Yeah, these are
0: critical right
1: now. Yeah, these are some of the few remaining groups um, that are providing social services uh, right now. Because, of course, you can't. Even as a homeschooler, I do see that schools often provide a social purpose. And for some yeah. families, for some kids, home is not the safest place.
0: Right. Right. And
1: so it's it's good that they have some other place to go. And they
0: need. They need. Kids need to be around other kids. I mean, whether it's in homeschool groups or, or going to school or whatever it is, you know, it doesn't do kids any good to be isolated from the rest of the world.
1: Right. Yeah. They need to be going out and going somewhere. And we were, and one of my articles talked about this thing known as third places where, uh, this is a historical concept that sociologists have talked about for a long time. And this is the idea that you need a place other than your home, other than your workplace, to mm-hmm. To engage in interaction with other people in your community, this builds uh, social cohesion. This often overcomes um, kind of simmering problems underneath the surface, surface between people and different social classes and that sort of thing. Um, the and this is something that's just simply uh, accepted as as something that's important in a functioning society. But mm-hmm. overnight, that was taken and away.
0: And that's been that's been. Yeah, it just ripped ripped away all of a sudden.
1: And so no one should have been surprised that following that you had an uptick in in violent crime, you had an uptick mm-hmm. in, in riots, in, in suicides and depression and that sort of thing. Suddenly people were robbed of those sorts of things that are very important to their lives. I, and yeah. when you say that, though, some people are so clueless. I remember saying this on Mises.org and someone in the comments section said, you know, if you can't handle not going to the bar for a few <laughs> weeks to save lives, I mean, that's just pretty sad. And I thought, imagine being a person whose life is so empty that <laughs> that a shutdown to them means just not going to a bar. I right, mean,
0: right. And, you know, just for myself, you know, my husband and I are are kind of homebodies. So we, you know, we both work from home. We like to go out. But we just end up not doing it very much. We've got kids and everything so for us personally, it hasn't we haven't experienced that sense of, oh, I can't go hang out with, you know, with my friends at the bar or at the club or have to go out for dinner or whatever it was. But that's us, you know, we're weirdos. Um, for most people and you know, for us too, if we if we did a better job of it, it's it's critically important to have social connection and to, to go out and just and you know release some tension and have a drink and and talk about the things that are going on you know that's yeah it's it's not um you know it's it's easy to trivialize but it actually is very important and you know well, this whole- so,
1: so many of our solutions are and it's not even just this current crisis but just issues in terms of the state destroying are non-state institutions and and people uh, being demoralized and uh, people losing their living because of uh intervention from the state and so on so many of these issues can be addressed if by really building up the social non-state institutions that are around us
0: yeah and i feel like this is a huge like as i said you know we're, we're working on some of that and I feel like this is a huge opportunity to do, to do that because, you know, even, even the example of the police, you know, people are seeing that the police are not going to protect them. And, you know, the, the institutions the things that you, that people assume the government is there to provide are not doing what they think they're going to do. And so it's, there's this tremendous need now to sort of, to recreate a lot of the institutions that the state and the insurance companies and all those guys came in and wiped away, you know, like a century ago, you know, it's time to rebuild those.
1: Hmm. And you know, and I, my wife and I are like you. I don't like going out if I can avoid it. Um. And and uh, I do. <laughs> but
0: most people do. <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: And so I said to her, I said, "Uh oh, we're going to have to because of what's happened. We're going to have to recover the lost art of hospitality." Yeah. And and this yeah. is that whole issue where people would just stop by other people's houses. Yeah. And you would offer them coffee, and you would invite them in, and you would be friendly to them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it's so weird, but, (laughs) but I, that's absolutely true. My sister every week is having a gather, a get together out in her front yard. We do, we have a, a barbecue and just have a bunch of people over and we hang out, you know, I probably wouldn't have done that. So, you know, I probably wouldn't have gone every single week before this, but you realize how important it is for people to connect just in, you know, simple little things that, you know, that the, that the government thinks is, is easily, you know, dispensable, and that people will, will ridicule and say, oh, you can't do without your barbecue for a week. Those things are really important.
1: And I think that's the easiest way to get in under the radar also. If they do mm-hmm. no, do another stay-at-home order, lockdown or so on, I think a lot fewer people will comply, first of all. yeah. Yeah. Uh but secondly, I think then I mean the the onus is on us, including, including those of us who don't like to socialize. Right,
0: right. right. No, we're it, just it,
1: gonna have to have people over. We're just gonna have to I, open our homes up <laughs> and and have gatherings there. Yeah,
0: it's painful, but but and you know, we and we actually have started doing that a little bit, and I I enjoy it once it's you know, once we do it, it I, I do enjoy it. Um but it's not sort of my nature to to want to do that or to set it up. Um, but you're so right; it's it's critical now that we start connecting, just as individuals and families, and getting together, and you know, building that. I'm going to say rebuilding because it's kind of how society used to be. Um, rebuilding that foundation.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think just the sheer volume of restaurants and bars that have been available in recent decades. Um, it makes it easier to not have to ever use your house to entertain. Uh, And so I think that's one reason it's not even necessarily any nefarious forces. It's just the fact that you can go out all the time and it's, it's easy. Uh, whereas 50 years ago, I don't think you had nearly the choices.
0: No, Uh, definitely not. No, I remember. Yeah. 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 Certainly (laughs) like in, in, in the Midwest, um, where I was, I grew up there. So yeah, it wasn't, wasn't like this at all. So
1: well, we're, we're just gonna have to build up a neighborhood network that didn't exist before. And I think maybe that could, could actually end up providing some big benefits over time. We shouldn't stop just yeah. because COVID goes away.
0: No, I think we need to, we need to start up a lot of things that we should have started before. I mean, including you know neighborhood protection networks and, you know, um, neighborhood watch and that sort of thing, you know, taking that stuff seriously because It's, I think, I think people are seeing that the things we thought we weren't responsible for, we actually are responsible for. Yes. Um, we've gone way past time. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm going to have to have you on again at some point. Um, and thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing.
1: Great. Thank you very much. It was fun. right.